Chapter 10 of Harry D. or Making It Out. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Charlotte Rose. Harry D. or Making It Out by Francis J. Finn. Chapter 10 in which we divide our attention between baseball and Latin, and are prepared for a contest in the one and an examination in the other. The nervous attack of which I spoke in the preceding chapter was, I might say, the first and last that I suffered at South Moors. With each day I seemed to gain strength and vigor. Little by little my nervous facial twitching disappeared, and before Christmas the attentive physician of the college pronounced me well. How calmly and peacefully these golden months glided on. During October and the early part of November, baseball held its own in the yard. Tom was unwearied in training his nine. Although he seldom called upon me to pitch, and even then but for a few innings, yet he gave me many words of encouragement. Just wait, he said, till the flowers that bloom in the spring, tra-la, give promise of merry sunshine. Then we'll turn you loose in the box, and we'll show the second nine of the big yard a trick or two. Tom was ambitious. It was his darling idea to play and defeat the junior nine of the senior division. To most of our fellows, the proposition seemed a trifle wild. But Tom had some foundation for the faith that was in him. To begin with, he counted on a strong infield. Joe White was first baseman. As a batter, Joe was weak, nor was he reliable in stopping grounders. But for holding a thrown ball, he was perfect in his way. At second base, he had John Donnell, a faultless fielder, he was called the king of second base, and the strongest batsman on the nine. Indeed, it was generally held, held that John was superior in safe hitting to any of the large yard junior nine. George Keenan covered short field. This very little fellow contrived to be everywhere, always in the right place and at the right time. Fairly strong at the bat, he was at his best when running the bases. He could twist and turn with such agility that it was almost impossible to catch him off his guard, although he played off further from base than any one of our players. Third base was covered by Charles Richards. He was a strong batter, excellent for running catches, but not over-reliable at stopping ground balls. As for the outfield, Quip at center and Rutters at right were fair catchers and excellent throwers, although both were weak batsmen. Harry Quip, however, redeemed this defect by excellent base running. Percy was a left fielder. He had one weak point, and that was in throwing. He could scarcely put a ball on a line from his ordinary position to second base. But, saving this, he was a phenomenon. He had a knack, which few fielders possess, 
of being able to judge a fly almost as soon as it was knocked. And when he got hold of a ball, he clasped it, as it were, with hooks of steel, that is, with two small, delicate hands, large enough, however, to hold any ball that came within their grasp. As for running, his speed was something extraordinary. Tom, Keenan, and even Donal had to give in to him in this, although he was not as quick in recovering himself as George. Thus far, Percy, fair in his batting, had done little in the way of base stealing. But it was just on this point that Tom founded something of his hopes. He counted on Percy's becoming a phenomenal base stealer before spring, and he himself had Percy in private training during the winter. Tom himself was our catcher, and he was as steady, cool, and reliable there as any captain could be. He never lost his head, never flagged in his attention, never missed a point in the game. In throwing to bases, he was considered second only to Ryan, the best catcher of the senior students. But now for our ninth weakest point. I was on the list to pitch. It was evident to everyone that unless I gained more speed, the big boys would knock out two and three baggers almost at will. On the other hand, it was admitted that my curves were very good and that my command of the ball was unusual. As to my general playing abilities, beyond doubt I was the worst of all the blue clippers. My batting was wretched and my base running of a piece with it. Worst of all, I was very unsure in catching those twisting flies that are so often popped up for the benefit of the pitcher. But for all this, Tom protested that I'd be on hand in the spring with speed enough and endurance enough to face the heavy batters of the juniors for nine innings. As for the opposing nine, they were clearly our superiors in batting, and they were provided, moreover, with an excellent pitcher. So matters stood in the autumn, at which period it would have been downright folly even to attempt a game with the boys whom we purposed defeating in the spring. I should add that the juniors were in blissful ignorance of our lofty aspirations. During the winter season they forgot their baseball and devoted themselves between study hours to sports suitable to the changing months. Not so with us. Tom kept us all at a regular course of gymnastics. Besides which training, he contrived to pay special attention to Percy and myself. In the meantime, studies went on briskly. How our set did soak themselves in their Latin altar. We spent the whole of the Latin class hour in trying to catch one another. In this, Percy was the quickest and Tom next. As for knowledge of Latin, I was considered the best. This, I could easily see, was not due to any mental superiority on my part, but to the fact that I had had a private tutor to help me and more time to give to the study. It was clear to me that for taking in new matter, Tom and Percy were easily my superiors, and I had no doubt that by the end of the year both would at the very least be on a par with me in actual knowledge of the language. 
nor did we confine ourselves to the classwork. Once or twice a week we held informal meetings. Then, under my guidance, the ambitious young students read my selection from Cicero's letters. Before Christmas, indeed, they knew as much of these 500 lines as I did myself, so that during the holidays we were all casting about for something new. I was at the end of my tether. The others had all read the same authors. We would have liked to have Mr. Middleton preside over our Ciceronian meetings, but we knew that what with his teaching and his perfecting he had all the work he could possibly attend to. Mr. Middleton solved our dilemma. Get Keenan, he said, to go over a bit of pro archia poeta with you. It's true you will see it again in poetry class, but even so you will not lose by it. Keenan gladly assented to our request. And during the months of January, February, and March, we parsed, translated, analyzed, imitated, and memorized 150 lines of Pro Archia Poeta. Of course, we didn't do all this because we looked upon it as fun, but we really did like Latin. And we really did love Mr. Middleton. And we really did hope to make, at very worst, a strong fight the following year for the intercollegiate gold medal. I suppose all of us felt weary and disgusted at times. I know I did. But there was a spirit of energy in us, a spirit, you may be sure, breathed into us by our enthusiastic teacher, and daily kept alive and nourished by his heartening words. During the second half of the year, we began to talk Latin in class. As an encouragement to talk at all, Mr. Middleton offered a prize for the first week to the one who should make the most blunders. Tom Playfer won it easily, with Harry Quip a distant second. After a month, the prize was for the one who should make the least blunders. And, if I may anticipate, in June he was to receive the prize who employed in his class talk the greatest number of classical Indians. Percy and myself were a tie at the end, and received each of us a very pretty picture. It was the morning of March 21st. The sun, which had risen a few hours before in a burst of splendor, was now shining with the bridal brightness of spring. The sweet twitter of the early birds fell welcome upon our ears, while the fresh green grass just peeping out of the earth and the swelling buds on the trees gave promise of beautiful blossoms and joyous ramblings over the grassy prairies, of wild flowers and all the scents and sounds that are connected with the prettiest time of all the year. The small boy loves life, and therefore he loves spring, to him there is a glory about the budding tree and divinely painted flower which is dimmed or invisible to the eye of an adult. The wild freshness of spring touches a wild freshness of sympathy in the heart of the small boy. Tom was as gay as this season. Harry, he exclaimed, as his eyes feasted upon the landscape. It's spring! 
I've observed it, I answered. And how much did you weigh when you came here? Eighty pounds. And what is it now? One hundred and three. And do you think you could stand nine innings? I laughed. If the batters can stand it, I can. So you see, I was right when I said you'd be well by spring. Now, remember, on or about the 15th of April, we're going to play the large boys one game. Only one? I inquired. Well, yes, answered Tom. It will be too much of a strain on us to tackle them often. And besides, either we'll beat them the first time or we won't. If we do, we're satisfied. If we don't, we'll scarcely be able to do it this year, for we intend to put in our best licks in a lump. Well, you may rely upon it, Tom, that I'll do my best to help on. But isn't our class specimen to come off about the same time? That's what I've counted on, said Tom. We're going to make that a success, you know. And then we'll be flushed with success, as they say. Six of the players are in our class, and if they can stand up before a board of reverend examiners successfully, they won't be afraid to face a big boy with a ball in his hand. Tom was of opinion that the same energy which could conquer difficulties in the classics could also conquer difficulties on the playground. To him, the boy who was leader in the playground and dunce in the classroom was a freak, a lusus naturae. As a matter of fact, all of his players were as quick with their wits as with their limbs. In choosing his nine, he had selected those who were fair in sports and in studies, in preference to better athletes with muddier intellects. Spring, then, passed on with even pace. She sent the birds a-singing and painted the flowers in all their glory of color and scented the breeze with her perfumes. She brought the brightest of sunshine and the bluest of skies and the greenest of swords. But strong as was her charm, she could not allure the academic boys from their books. They studied right on in hours of study, and then when playtime came, they breathed in the vernal glories all the more joyously that they had done their duty. And so the time flew till April 12 arrived. The morning of the specimen. End of chapter 10